I'm Jeff Cohen. It's not often you meet someone whose journey to Jewish observance kicked into high gear after interacting with Christian missionaries, but that's exactly what happened to our next guest, Rabbi Brian Borenstein. Let's hear that story now, as well as the other events and experiences on his Jewish journey. Rabbi Borenstein, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Hey Jeff, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. So even by the tone of your voice, you're giving me this laid-back California vibe, which tells me that's where your story begins. Am I hearing that correctly? 100%. I'm super chill. L.A. through and through, born and raised out here. All right. So you're a guy from Southern California. And what was your family like growing up in terms of their Judaism? Growing up, Judaism was always a part of our life. Uh, My family always sent me and my brothers to yeshiva, and it was academic. When we came home, we didn't necessarily keep much. There was a lot of going to Subway and Islands and non-kosher restaurants where we were encouraged not to have the meat. We would drive to shul and then I'd go to a baseball card show or part of a baseball league or whatever it was. So Judaism was always a part of our life. We would do Passover, my grandparents and family, and my family hosted a lot of the Yom Tovim, but there wasn't much substance in terms of practice. It was, sure, go to shul and then come home and watch, you know, WWF wrestling or whatever. So what did that feel like to you? You're learning one thing in school, and there's got to be kids who are there who are going home to a place that's modeling exactly what the kids are learning in school, but you're having this different experience. There's almost like a disconnect there. What did that feel like to you as a kid? So when I was younger, it didn't really mean anything. Sure, I'd wear tzitzit and put on tefillin at school and at home. We never did that. And obviously, I had friends who did it on Sundays and wore tzitzit on Saturdays and Sundays. And I didn't really think much of it. I was always a good kid. I, you know, having that academic approach to Judaism was fine because it's all I knew. But then later on, a few things happened in my life that got me to question, is there more to this than just the academic aspect of Judaism? And I'm sure we're going to get into some of these questions you started asking. I know that's a key part of your journey. I want to ask you a couple more questions about your childhood. The fact that you were going to, I guess what you would describe as a typical Jewish day school, were your friends mostly Orthodox? Was it the whole spectrum of Judaism? Like, who were you hanging out with? So I went to a a modern Orthodox day school, and you had the principal of the school, the rabbis, their kids were in that school. You know, I had other friends whose mom kept Shabbat and their dad worked on Shabbat, and you really had a wide range of observance levels. So since we had that in my school, nothing really seemed weird to me or off. It's just you did what you did, I did what I did, and nobody really judged anybody. Given this whole spectrum, what kind of bar mitzvah did you have? Was it Reform, Conservative, Orthodox, Conservatox? Did it even get a label? Like, how would you describe what that experience was? No, when we went to shul, it was the Orthodox shul. I had an Orthodox bar mitzvah. And when we practiced Judaism, it was Orthodox. Right, but you weren't doing like the whole all-in thing, because the way you described within your family, you weren't doing the same things that maybe a family that was fully observant was doing. Oh, for sure. So when I was bar mitzvah, I laid the Parsha, I did the Haftorah. And I prepared everything, and I knew everything because, again, I was going to Orthodox Jewish day schools. But when we weren't doing an actual activity or a particular holiday event, right, a Passover Seder, for example, I was watching TV on Yom Tov, or I was going to the baseball card show on Shabbat, and not doing anything necessarily in line with what the Shulchan Aruch would tell me to do. If I think, though, about your life post-Bar Mitzvah, because I've interviewed a lot of people who are raised really conservative or reformed, and there's this feeling like the Bar Mitzvah is almost like the graduation from Judaism, unless they rediscover it as an adult. But your story would seem to me to be different because you're still in the yeshiva system for middle school and high school. So are you still feeling connected in that way because of your education? 
for me, nothing really changed until an event happened in 10th grade. My whole life, everything was exactly the same. It was when you did it, you did it. And 90% of the time, you weren't doing anything. So again, when I went to Yeshiva, I had all the knowledge in my head. I could open up a Gemara. I could, could learn Chumash and Navi and, and all that stuff. And I knew the laws. But again, it was just academic. There was no feeling of spirituality or I must do this when I'm not in front of my rabbi. And again, that was, that was fine because that's, that's what I knew. And you just made my life easy as an interviewer because you alluded to something dramatic happening in 10th grade that maybe changed how everything was progressing. So why don't you share that story? Yeah, in 10th grade, it was a Saturday, and we had Christian missionaries came to my parents' home, and they knocked on the door. And I was the one to open the door. And they said, do you know who Jesus is? I said, no, why don't you tell me about him? And they said, you want us to tell you about him? I said, sure. (laughs) Not a response they're used to, I guess. And I said, I've never heard of this before. I don't know the answers to your questions. I said, I'll go to, to Yeshiva, and I'll ask my rabbis, come back next week. They said, you want us to come back? Sure, come back. And... I went to school, and I remember going up to one of the rabbeim, and I said, you know, virgin birth or whatever argument they they asked me. And the response was, it's Christianity, get out of your head. It's nourishkeit, we don't talk about that. I said, Rabbi, excuse me, I was taught my whole life, ask questions because we have answers. And if you don't know the answer to the question, that's fine. Tell me you don't know. You don't have to know the answer. Well, he blew me off. And I asked another rabbi who had the exact same response, and a couple of things happened from that. One very important thing happened, which was I learned the important lesson of saying I don't know. If somebody asks you a question and you don't know the answer, say you don't know. Because when you hear the answer from that person, you could take it to the bank because, you know, they're humble enough to say they don't know when they don't know. These rabbis had too much pride and ego, which led me to do the intellectual immature thing, which was become an atheist. I didn't know what an atheist was. I just knew they didn't believe in God. So I said, I'm just going to do that. And I blamed God for what the rabbis had said to me. And that was immature. So there used to be things called bookstores. And uh, I was very liberal with my parents' credit card. And I bought books on atheism. And I decided to become an atheist for a couple of years. By a couple of years, you mean the last couple of years of high school? You're still going to the yeshiva, but you're kind of going through the motions because you're not necessarily believing what you're learning anymore? That's right. And since Judaism was never really part of my life in terms of practice, it didn't really change my life. I was always a good guy. I was always a good kid. My classmates and I, we were, we were tight. I was good with the rebellion. So nobody really knew. And they saw, all right, he's performing in school. He's doing well. He's coming to, you know, the two minyanim at school, Shacharis and Mincha, and... And he's doing everything he's supposed to do. So nobody knew. And I didn't make a deal out of it. I wasn't waving the atheist flag. But on my own, I was committing myself to this, knowing full well now, looking back, that it was an immature approach, but which ended up really working out for me and the people I've ended up helping. Were you talking to your parents at all about how you were feeling? No. My parents found out later, after I went through my whole exploration of everything that happened, I just never, it was an issue because they didn't see a change in lifestyle. They saw, okay, fine. He was still going to shul when we drove to shul. He was still participating in Passover when we were doing that because, frankly, the practice of Judaism was so infrequent at the house in terms of what you action and what you do. It didn't really matter. It's not like my family was saying, oh, are you making a blessing before you eat? That wasn't how I was raised. So... I was just a good kid. Shabbat dinner was time for family. We didn't sing Zmirot or Devar Torahs. None of that stuff happened. So it, it didn't really affect anything. Nobody could tell anything. 
Clearly, there's no cause for alarm on the outside looking in. Like you said, you're checking all the boxes. You look like a good kid. You're getting good grades. So let's now go inside what's happening inside your head as you're reading these books and starting to process what you're learning and what it's going to mean for your life. It wasn't as much as what I was learning as much as I was upset with how rabbis handled my questions. And again, just saying, hey, I don't know the answer. They didn't do that. And that really upset me. And so the way I lashed out was... Internally, I just said, okay, I blamed God for the rabbis, and that's a mistake. You never judge a religion by the people, you judge it by the book. It's that simple. Every religion, you'll have the nicest, kindest, most brilliant, godlike people in every religion, and in every religion, you'll have jerks. And don't make the mistake of judging religion on people, judge it on God, on the book. So, essentially, in my mind, I was just reading these books, and one argument that really resonated with me was the morality-based argument, that if God is good and, and all-knowing and loving, how can all of these bad things just happen to people? How can that happen? So I'm admitting that it was immature, but that's where I was inside my head. I would think when someone's feeling this way, they're trying to work through all this information to figure out what they believe, what their road ahead is going to be. And it's also a time of your life when you are getting exposed to so many things. You're going from the high school to the college years. You're meeting new people. You're learning new things. How are you putting this all together to sort of figure out who you're going to be as you enter into the college years? In terms of Judaism, I didn't really think about that because my life was baseball. I was a very good baseball player. I ended up getting a couple of scholarships. I went to Dodger camp for four years. I had Dodger, minor league, major league, college coaches working with me. I was on the trajectory. Um, you know, the Dodger coaches told me that they thought I could make it to the minors for sure. And um, after getting those scholarships, that that started looking like a reality to me. And that was the trajectory that I was hoping to go. And Judaism, if it's not part of your everyday life, and it's just a Passover Seder and, a, you know, a Shabbat Shalom, you know, if you happen to go to synagogue, it's not really something I think about. You know, in Christianity, when you think about somebody who's religious, it's somebody who's thinking about God. But in Judaism, you could be a, an Orthodox Jew and not think about God and just live your life, but the Torah dictates how you live your life 24 hours a day. So it's all about actioning out halacha. It's very different approach in terms of the definition of what religious means. I'm listening to your story and I'm thinking at this point, this guy is an atheist who's going to be the next Clayton Kershaw pitching for the Dodgers, but that's not how your story is going to end up. So something must have happened that the path changed from where it seems like at age 17, 18, 19, where it's headed. So what happens? So I decided that I was going to give God a chance. And I said, you know what? I just said I'm going to be an atheist. And I realized that I didn't ever give God the equal chance as I gave in disproving God. And I started reading books and started being open-minded to proof of God, which I came to believe in. And then the question was, which religion is right? Why can't everybody be right? My first question literally was, why can't everybody be right? If we all have the same outlook that God is loving and we all love God and we're all sincere with our approach, we just have different ways of getting to the same source. And that was my first question. Why can't we all be right? And then I decided I didn't want to learn about Judaism from an imam or Christianity from a rabbi. So I called up both schools who gave me scholarships, and I said I'm going to study religion on condition I get the scholarships deferred for a year. And uh, they both said that I could do that, and I decided to go to Israel. And I was a blank canvas, meaning 
you know, people are raised, we know the truth, they think they know the truth, but we know the truth. That's what everybody thinks. So, what you know, I don't believe more, right? Every Christian in my heart, I know Jesus is right. You might have some people who are very extreme radical Muslims who will blow themselves up in the name of their God. You think you believe more than them? I doubt that. So I said, I have to be a blank canvas, meaning I have to be a Martian. I never heard of a Moses, a Muhammad, a Jesus. And all I did was I spoke and read biblical Hebrew. And if I did that and I read the Jewish scriptures only, would I come to the conclusion that Mashiach came, died, will come back again, that he's Jesus, and magically he's God now? When I asked myself those questions, there was no way that was possible. So that's really what led me to, to believing in Judaism as opposed to any other religion. Where did you go specifically when you went to Israel? You hear stories of people going to a specific Jewish program, which has a, you know, kind of protocols of how the whole thing is going to unfold for you. But given where your mind was at and what you were looking for, I wouldn't think you could go to just a traditional sort of post-high school yeshiva. So how did you figure out the place to get your answers? So that's exactly what I did. Again, when I was in high school, I was a good kid. I just went with the flow. And I went to a place called, called Or Yerushalayim, OJ. It's one of those, you know, popular modern Orthodox yeshiva that you go to. And I did that. And while I did that, I was also going into uh, Jerusalem and East Jerusalem, learning with an imam, learning with a minister, and I was really exploring. And the hardest religion for me to come to terms with in terms of just studying doctrine was Judaism, because in Yeshiva, when I was in Yeshiva, it was just Gemara. And so I wasn't really able to learn scripture unless I was learning the New Testament or their translation of, of the Jewish scriptures, which I, which is a whole conversation in terms of how they you know, the mistranslations and how the church has literally molested our Bible in translation. And so I was learning with the minister for a bit. I learned with an imam, but I did not explore Islam as long as Christianity, for sure. Christianity was what I delved into. But yeah, I found a wonderful minister with whom I learned, and he was really respectful. He knew what I was doing. And then I went on a Shabbaton called the Matisdorf Shabbaton, which is where he got to spend Shabbat with Rav Chaim Pinchas Scheinberg, who was known, you know, he wore hundreds of pairs of tzitzit. And somebody said, you need to tell him what you're doing. And I did. And he said, I want you to come back and give me updates. Why is this right? Why is that wrong? And I developed a really beautiful relationship with him as well. And under his guidance, when I came back to America, I went undercover to be trained as a Jew for Jesus missionary in New York. And uh, when they found out what I was doing, that did not go over well. Um, but but again, to know how they train you to, to convert Jews and, and go after them. But I learned a lot of uh, our scripture from learning the New Testament and then going back and comparing it. It's so interesting as I'm listening to your story that all along the way, you're doing like what the nice Jewish boy should be doing, like in high school and then going to the post high school program. So anyone looking at you says, this kid's doing the right thing. And parents, rabbis would be like, he's perfectly right on the path. But there's this like whole other world going on in parallel as you're trying to figure out your place in Judaism. Am I hearing this right? Yeah, 100%. Working with college students for seven years that my wife and I have been doing and knowing where I was and looking at people and trying to, you know, understand that you don't judge a book by its cover. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. I was a good kid doing everything I was supposed to do. The Rebbeim in Yeshiva had really had no idea. They were very happy with, with my progress in Yeshiva. And I'm glad they didn't know because obviously there would have been an issue and I don't know what would have happened. But what ended up happening was... I'm very involved in bringing Jews back from the church and non-Jews to becoming Noahides and Jews who go to yeshiva to have a close relationship with God. So in that regard, it all worked out well. Not from a Christian perspective, but from a Jewish perspective. 
And let's now continue with the storyline. You you were in Israel, you come back, you have these opportunities to play baseball at a couple different schools. Where are you holding in terms of Orthodox Judaism at this point, and do you now pursue baseball when you come back to the States? When I came back to the States, I was in Yeshiva for, I was in Israel for a year and a half, and that was a big problem with my family because I got my scholarships deferred for one year. And my dad wanted to see how far I could go with this baseball thing. And when I told my parents I want to go back to Yeshiva for Shana Bet for my second year, oh boy, let's just say it didn't go over well. You know, they said, what about baseball? I said, I believe in Judaism and I'm keeping Shabbat. I can't do it. And that was one of the hardest decisions I ever had made on an emotional level because think about what you love more than anything and then saying, no, God, I love you and I'm choosing you over that. And Judaism is not a religion of asceticism. We don't, we don't distance ourselves from things, but there's a way to funnel and direct those passions and, and those enjoyments. For me, it was just a no to baseball because of Shabbos. You know, my parents were really upset. My mom fought me tooth and nail that I'm becoming too orthodox. And I said, I, I don't understand. You spent all this money for me and my three younger brothers to go to yeshiva our whole lives. Why? And the answer I got was to have it in the head, but not necessarily to do it. <laughs> okay, everybody does their thing. And again, the fact that they spent all that money for us to go to yeshiva and everything, you know, that's incredible, my parents. So they did what they knew. But yeah, I had to turn down the scholarships because, you know, Judaism and Shabbos became a focal point of my life and I wasn't able to do both. The only part of your story that doesn't quite yet add up for me is that you're in Israel, you're exploring all these different religions, you're in like a traditional post-high school program. But when you got there, you weren't necessarily keeping Shabbos or being fully observant. Like, what happened in Israel that you made this decision that you're going to go, like, further in your observance than when you got there? Like, how did you get to that point? You're telling me about this call you had with your parents, like, I'm going to keep Shabbos, and that means no to baseball. But what specifically happened while you were in Israel that got you to that point of feeling like that's what your journey is supposed to be? That had nothing to do with what I learned in yeshiva. That had everything to do with what I learned on my own in terms of choosing Judaism. Again, after I came to believe in God, then I started saying, okay, now what religion is it, if it's a religion? And once I decided it was Judaism, I'm sort of an all-or-nothing kind of guy in a lot of ways. And so I said, okay, this is it. Now, I had an advantage over your average Balchuva. I knew all this stuff. It's not like I had never gone on a NCSY Shabbaton or anything where I, you know, kept Shabbat. Of course, I've kept Shabbat before. I've been to my friends' houses for Shabbat and things like that. I knew how to do it. It's just not something that I did. So when I was in Yeshiva, just going along with what other people did in that regard, like, that wasn't hard. And it was also, you know, I'm 43, so you're talking 1998. It's not like we had Apple iPhones and all these things that, that might make life a little bit more difficult in terms of being addicted to technology. I didn't have that. So to me, that meant, okay, what, so I'm, I'm not going to play baseball or basketball in Shabbos? I mean, okay. So we had board games and, and cards. So in that regard, it wasn't that big of a deal. People who are alone for Shabbos, that's hard. But I was in yeshiva. I was with a lot of guys. Then you come back from Israel after the 18 months, and it's not going to be about baseball. So do you get a college degree? Where do you go? And what's happening both career-wise and in terms of Judaism now that you're back in the States? I decided that I had to find a college, and I wanted to continue with uh, yeshiva education. So I looked into yeshiva university, and I got accepted to YU. And then I heard about a yeshiva called Torah Mitzion, and one of the rabbeim had moved to Israel and became a rebbe at Or Yerushalayim, and he told me about it. And I said, that sounds like a great yeshiva for me. 
So I ended up going there. And for college, I went to Turo in Brooklyn. And I got my degree in business management and marketing. And so I did three and a half years in New York, where I went, again, undercover to be trained as a Jew for Jesus missionary. And my Rosh Hashiva was, you know, everybody was fine seeing that I was doing the counter-missionary work. And I would bring a New Testament into the base measure to study. And people were learning other things. And, you know, in that regard, the yeshiva was really perfect for me. And one of the Rebbeim, I'm still very close with, Rav Avram Gaon. He's in Queens. And... Yeah, it really worked out really well. Turo being at night, yeshiva during the day, do my counter-missionary work during the day for, you know, my debates or getting phone calls. Hey, we met a missionary. Can you come here and help us? And sure. And it was just a great area for me to get my feet wet in that world too. And then you graduate and you're starting to think about how am I going to make some money? Um, You're in your early 20s. So where do you go career-wise? My father's an attorney, has a law firm, and he made me an offer. And so I decided, okay, well, I guess I'll explore that. And um, I really didn't enjoy uh, law school. And so I decided, you know what? This counter-missionary stuff is really, really, really resonating with me, and I'm not bad at it. And I was doing that, but how do I monetize it? I don't want to charge people for meeting with them. So I decided that I love fitness. I was into fitness for a very long time. And I decided that I was going to open up a boot camp. I ended up opening up uh, two and then buying two from an owner. And I was running four outdoor fitness boot camps, and, uh, which was great because that was like early morning and evening classes. And I had a bunch of trainers working for me. So I w- it gave me the ability and afforded me time during the day to meet with people, to be able to pay for life and to be able to work in the world of counter-missionary work and bringing Jews back from the church and, and bringing Jews who are Jewish but are nothing, Jews for nothing, and to help them develop a relationship with God as well. So that's what I was doing for, I did that for nine years. And you're, are you thinking, I'm just going to have this huge like boot camp empire, it's going to go nationwide and this will be my thing for the rest of my life? No, I, I didn't really care about that. To me, it was, you know, make enough money to live. I, I was never really, you know, super money hungry. I was soul hungry. I, I really, <laughs> I, I was really passionate about helping Jews discover maybe a new relationship with God that maybe they hadn't had before. Even people went to the yeshiva system. I get calls today from the yeshiva gedolas and, you know, the super, super yeshivish places to help students who just, it's not resonating with them. And I have a very special place in my heart for people who are not Jewish. And you've brought up a few times the counter-missionary work. I'm wondering if there's a story or two of an interaction you had, an effect you had on someone that you could bring to life the kind of work that you were doing. I'll, I'll tell you one quick story. There was a girl, um, her mother called me up. It came from a very wealthy area in L.A. called Brentwood. And she said, uh, my daughter converted to Christianity. Now, whether you're a forum, conservative, or orthodox, there's one thing you don't do. You don't convert out of the faith. So I know that if I'm being called to meet with a Jew who converted to Christianity, not only am I bringing somebody back to Judaism, but I'm putting a family back together because there was probably a fight. So I said, I'm willing to meet with your daughter. Is she willing to meet with me? Yeah, she's willing to meet with a rabbi. So I go to this house, and this girl comes down with a New Testament. She's ready to go. She comes down guns a-blazing, and I said, I don't know what you're doing with that. She's like, that's what you're here for, to learn scripture with me. I said, I've got two tickets to a Dodger game. I'd like to take you to a Dodger game. <laughs> she said, what? Now, in my head, I know that I could go to any yeshiva, and I could prove Christianity to the yeshiva guys, because they don't know Tanakh, and I can manipulate Tanakh, and I know the arguments. And the yeshiva guys will think, I may not know the argument, but my rabbi knows the argument, so I'm not going to listen to what you have to say. Well, why would, be a Christian, why would a Christian be any different? Her defense walls will go up. 
Nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. It is that simple. You don't penetrate a brain until you penetrate a heart. So I spent three weeks hanging out with her a few times a week, just developing a relationship with her. And I knew that I had to make her like and respect me on a human level in order for the defense walls to stay down and not come up. So after that, I started learning with her. And now I'm very happy to say she's an Orthodox Jewish mother of two kids and uh, happily married in the L.A. area. You're doing the boot camp thing you said for nearly a decade. Does your wife come into the picture during that 10-year time period? And, and what was her background compared to you and the kind of life you want to build together? So my wife was raised here in Southern California, and she was not raised in a religious home at all. She went to a public school that was predominantly Mormon, and uh, she was a cheerleader. She was a dancer. She tried out to be a New York Knicks cheerleader. She was not a religious girl. But Judaism was uh, special in her heart. Uh, what you brought up before about graduating from Judaism after your bar bat mitzvah, that was her course. And she moved to Manhattan to learn about Judaism and grow. And she became close with Rebetzin Youngrice. And, and she was growing on a very slow trajectory, but a trajectory. And uh, we had a mutual friend who said you should go out. And um, I assumed that she was keeping everything. And when she found out, she said, I have to keep Shabbat. And the week before I met her, she kept her first full Shabbos to see if she could do it. And I didn't know that, which was great because now when I talk to people about, you know, different levels, if they're growing and they're Bali Chuva and somebody's not sure where they are, I tell people you don't have to be on the same level. As long as you see that the person is growth oriented and you guys are on the same trajectory, you'll find out where you'll land. There are non-negotiables and negotiables and you guys will figure it out. But as long as you're both growth oriented, I'm okay with people not being on the same level going out. So my wife and I uh, met, and we got married, and you know, living the dream, and um, and yeah. I would think though that when you met, there must have been conversations like, it's not about the pace that you're growing, but this is going to end up where we're keeping Shabbos, you're eating kosher, like there's going to be this baseline. Are you having that discussion with her and her understanding like where this has to head for the relationship to ultimately work? I didn't know that she wasn't at a certain level when I started dating her. And it's not like we were spending every Shabbos together. But um, she ended up telling me, you know, my first Shabbat that I kept fully was the week before I met you. And this was <laughs> after we had already, all right, this is it. I said, really? I didn't know that. But, um, and again, that would obviously be one of those non-negotiables, which is why she had that innate knowledge to see if she could do it the week before. And I'm glad she didn't tell me before I met her because... I would like to think that I was mature enough to say, I'll still go out with you. I think I would have, but I'm glad I wasn't put in that position to make that decision, if I'm being honest. So she was keeping kosher. She was on a very slow trajectory before I had met her. You know, it's like a 10-year process. But when I had met her, she was already doing most of those things anyway. How are your parents feeling at this time? Because the, the last time we brought them into the conversation, they were pretty upset with you and the choices you were making. But now you're a little bit more on the other side of it. And I would think they're seeing your life is pretty stable. You've met a great person to marry. You have an income source, all these things. Are they coming around to the choices that you're making at this point? Yeah, my, my dad was very quick to come around. Once, you know, the baseball thing ended, you know, his outlook was, it's your life. You do what makes you happy. And I never pushed anything on anybody. That's not my style. It's still to this day, I don't, when I learn with my students, I don't push. So my dad was very like, you know, you do you. My mom was a little different. You know, a lot of people have this outlook, anything more religious than me or a religious fanatic being, and in my mother's case, if you're less, then that's totally fine. So, um, out of 
four boys, I'm the only one who really has anything to do with Judaism, for example, in my family, right? I'm the only one who's with a Jewish girl. And right now, right now, they're fine with everything. You know, they got their two grandkids, and uh, <laughs> they get to see them a lot. And, um, you know, the fact that they're the only grandkids that they have, I think that they've got, they're a little bit more bought in. And continuing with your story, we were talking about you running boot camps, but I know from your background, you now work with the Orthodox Union. So can you share how you switched from boot camps to the OU and what you're doing specifically now with your wife? I have a very deep love for America. And I think that Jews need to show hakar tov, which means gratitude to this country. And I decided that I wanted to serve our country. And how can I serve? I'm already a little older. I'm not going to be a Marine or anything. So I decided that I was going to be a chaplain. And I started the process. I even went through MEPS, uh, which is, you know, the physical testing and all that. Everything was going well. They were actually getting ready to send me to Okinawa. I was a signature away. And then I heard about this. Uh, my wife and I had been uh, leading Shabbaton, um, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur at Camp Pendleton, which is the largest Marine base in the world. And it was incredible. It was like us and five Orthodox families. And I would do all the beginner services where, you know, we had like 300 Christians and 100 Jews. And it was like the beginner service had like 250 people all like asking me questions about Jesus. It was amazing. And I was like, I'm in this. This is my thing. This is my jam. And then there was a, um, a philanthropist who was hosting a, a chaplain Shabbaton. And so I went with about 20 other chaplains. And he asked us all our story and he started talking and he's like, I want you to work for me. And I said, what? Like, I'm going to be doing this. And he said, no, 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 you should be on college campus. And I never considered that, never thought about it. And um, he made me an offer that night and spoke to my wife about it. And it was in the area that we wanted to live in the San Fernando Valley. And uh, we met the director of Hillel. And uh, he said, have you heard of JLIC, the OU's college campus program? I said, no. And he said, you should meet the, the people in charge of JLIC on the West Coast, the Kaplans at UCLA. I said, okay. And uh, they liked us. And Rabbi Schrader and Rabbi Haber, the heads of JLIC, they were in New York. And they flew in at, to LA and they interviewed us. And they offered us the job. And the trajectory of our life changed in terms of instead of going to uh, Okinawa, and being a military person, we uh, decided to do the college campus thing. And again, it's been seven and a half years, and it's been incredible. And I asked you the story earlier from the counter-missionary work of an anecdote or two of how you influenced someone. So I have to believe there are at least a few thousand stories of things that you've done on campus. Maybe if you could pick one or two that you want to share on the podcast. Yeah, sure. In the yeshiva world, we really focus on taking modern Orthodox kids and trying to make them more Orthodox. And there was a brother and sister on campus, and the girl was very from, they came from a really solid Orthodox family, and the girl, she was doing everything, and she said, you need to meet my brother. I said, okay. She's like, he also went through the Yeshiva Day School, and, and he's great, but he decided he's taking a year off of Judaism. It's the first time he's in co-ed classes, and, and he wants to see what it's like to be with, hang out with non-Jewish girls and all that stuff. I said, your job is to get him in front of me. That's all you need to do. I will take it home. You just get him to me. I said, what's he into? She said, he's into uh, ping pong. So I created a whole ping pong tournament just to get this guy in front of me. <laughs> and so I meet him and, you know, we hit it off on the human level. We're just broing it up. We're talking about uh, Dodgers and Lakers. And I'm a big baseball and basketball guy. We're talking, we're schmoozing. And I smoke him. I smoke him in ping pong. 
<laughs> and I said, listen, man, you like to work out? You like to go hiking? And we started doing that. And we hung out for about five, six weeks. And he's loving hanging out with me. And he said, when are you going to finally bring up Judaism? I said, who cares about Judaism? We're hanging out on the, on the human level. Now, I don't go by rabbi. I don't go by Rav Brian. I go by rabs. My students call me rabs. And um, he's like, rabs, when are you, you going to bring up Judaism? And I said, I'm not. Like, we're just hanging out. And the fact that I didn't push anything on him for three years, he never missed a mishmar. He came to every class that I offered. He actually made aliyah. And uh, he wanted me to be the officiating rabbi at his at his wedding. And it didn't work out. I wasn't able to. But we're very close to this day. And he keeps everything. And it was all because a rabbi didn't push him. And it was all because... This rabbi had answers to his questions about things that he didn't get answered in yeshiva. A particular question was the dimensions of Noah's Ark not being big enough to hold every animal in the world, right? And when you have answers to questions like that, and you don't come across as preachy and try to change people, you know, you trust them to make decisions that's best for them, as opposed to trying to change them to live a lifestyle that you think is correct. That resonates with people, because you're not a threat. Clearly, you're also somebody who asked some difficult questions in your own journey when you were younger that I would think when you're meeting with these kids now, at this point in your life, you know exactly where they're coming from with these questions and you have enough practice of a way to answer them that it's not threatening to them or turning them off, but maybe even opening them up more to thinking about Judaism. Oh, for sure. I mean, the magic sauce is not just having the answers. Look, I worked hard on putting answers together and and looking into this. This is not stuff that I learned in yeshiva or smicha. It's not. But knowing how to relate with people and speak their language, the language that resonates with them, and knowing what to say and when to say it and when not to say it is also very important. But the magic sauce is the mixture of the knowledge and the information. But the most important thing for sure is the relationship, you know, no matter how brilliant my shira might be or how, you know, whatever, right, inspiring, right? If it inspires, it expires. It's got to become a part of you. And people don't become from or religious at a shir. That's important. But they become religious when they go to your house for Shabbos or they go to a pizza party, or in my case, they come to our house for Laker games and they say, wow, I want a wife like that. I want a husband like that. I want to be a dad like that. This is what I want to do. Well, I could be religious and watch Lakers. Yeah, you could do that. And to see that and make Judaism real and attainable, that's what I think the magic sauce is. All right. So last question before we close with the lightning round. You are clearly, you and your wife seem like people who map out how you're going to make an impact, like you really feel it and you're really living this. So what is on the horizon for you in the next three, five, ten years as you continue to have this profound impact on the Klal? The truth is we're in our last year of JLIC. Seeing the next step is scary. I, I don't know exactly what's happening yet. I'm very fortunate in that I've been given a few offers, so I can't really tell you for sure what's happening. But I will say that it is for sure working with the Jewish youth, you know, doing JLIC on college campus for seven years, you see what happens on the high school level. And so I would like to do some things with high school students to do some of the preventative work, to be honest with you, so we could avert some of the things that I deal with on a college campus. And for sure, doing something, establishing something more formal with the Noahide world. I'm not exactly sure what that looks like yet. I'm sorry, Jeff. Hopefully you'll have me on. <laughs> um, another time then we could discuss that, but, but as of now, I don't have, I, I know that it will be in the Jewish world and the Noahide world that I do know. All right. So you just gave us a cliffhanger that we need to have you for round two a year from now. And you can tell us the work you're doing with high school kids or middle school or wherever your journey goes. I have no doubt you'll be successful. 
Let's now jump to the lightning round to close out the interview. Are you ready? I'm ready. We talked about the fact that you ran boot camps for nearly a decade. So if you take a guy who's in his 30s or 40s raising a young family, what would you say is the optimal kind of workout at that stage in his life? Well, the most important thing is food. Working out for one or two hours a day never counterbalances 23 hours of eating whatever you want. So the (laughs) most important thing for sure is the food that goes in your mouth. You know, primarily plant-based. If you want to have some, you know, fish and eggs, you know, that's great. But um, if you go plant-based, for the most part, you will feel like a rock star. And in terms of exercise, I would say core functional training is obviously critically important. As you age, your muscles atrophy, so you definitely want to do weights as well. Stretching, stability, functional fitness is very important. Now, you'll hear this argument for question number two, that it's impossible to believe in science and religion. And so I want to ask you, in a lightning round sort of way, when someone tells you, sorry, I'm a science guy, don't hit me with the religion, how do you try to very quickly get them to realize, actually, you can believe in both, and there's a way they can coexist? Yeah, I would say that as we learn more about science, the more the Torah is proven correct, and the more that God is proven, right? Really quickly, if, if you would have taught that the universe had a beginning, right? As Gerald Schroeder says, 50 years ago, you would have lost your tenure, but the scientists heard a, a reverberation, and they looked back, and they saw something called the Big Bang. That means that there was a beginning to the universe, so the question of can you prove God to me in 30 seconds until we get to the next train stop, that's not really practical. But the more that we do learn about science, the age of the universe and the Torah, 50, right, we're in the year 5783, and proving that astrophysicists have actually proved through math beautifully through the stretching of time that the Torah and the 12 to 14 billion years, whatever, whichever lab you follow, meets beautifully through math. Last question. As a New Yorker for my whole life, my Shabbos meal constantly has the chillant, the kugel, the things that, that I'm used to. I'm really wondering, is there some kind of California-style dish that if I came out there would be a different experience from what I have here? At my home, it would be. Uh, your traditional Orthodox home, it would probably be the exact same thing as your uh, New York experience. But with us, we always have fruits and vegetables. I'm very into fresh fruit at every meal, including Shabbos, and I'm not a really big cholent, or I don't really eat meat, so um, you'll be seeing a lot of fish at the Shabbos table by us. Rabbi Borenstein, you are out of the lightning round, and I want to just say thank you so much for joining me on Saturday to Shabbos. Hey, Jeff, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.